Are you looking to expand your knowledge in supply chain? Check out episode 38 with Chris from MIT as we dive into the Supply Chain MITx program. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about the best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put the sexy into your supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Ian. It's a beautiful day here in Toronto, so welcome back to the show, Two Babes listeners. This week, we are getting into the demand-driven adaptive enterprise model with Carol Patak from the Demand Driven Institute. Carol is currently a partner with Demand Driven Institute, that's demanddriveninstitute.com, and was most recently at Pacific Lutheran University as visiting professor and distinguished executive in residence. Previously, she was a vice president and global industry executive for manufacturing and distribution industries at PeopleSoft, where she developed the concept of demand-driven manufacturing. Ms. Patak spent four years at IBM Corporation, culminating in the position of global SMB segment executive, a leading authority in the use of ERP and supply chain tools to drive improved bottom line performance Ms. Patak's expertise is well-grounded in four decades of practical experience as a successful practitioner, consultant, and educator in manufacturing operations. Her pragmatic approach to complex issues and dynamic presentation style has her in high demand worldwide on the subject of how to leverage these tools and achieve sustainable success. Wow, what a bio. Welcome to the show, Carol. We are so happy to have you here. Just a reminder for our audience, if you go to the Learning Center at IceCorpLogistics.com under Educational Partners, you will receive a 5% discount code for any programs on DemandDrivenInstitute.com. So let's get started, Carol. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Demand Driven Institute? Well, the Demand Driven Institute was founded in 2011 by Chad Smith and myself. And it's really dedicated to the methodologies around demand-driven. And we're a, we're a thought leadership company. We're a think tank. Uh, we've never sold software. We're not a consulting company at all. Uh, and what we really are all about is uh, getting people to say yes to the concept of demand-driven. What is demand-driven adaptive enterprise model? Well, the demand-driven adaptive enterprise model allows a company to be able to sense changes in customer demand, adapt planning and production, pull from suppliers, do it all in real time, and innovate so that it can really respond well to, to the needs of this new, incredibly variable, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous market that we find ourselves in. Awesome, awesome. So how do companies change and drive adaptation? Or adaption, sorry. Well, first step, yeah, adaptation. Because, oh, you know, you think about it. A lot of people believe that the person that said, you know, it's not the strongest of the species that survives, but it's the one that learns to adapt will survive. And it's so funny. If I ask an audience of people who said that, every hand will go up and they'll all say Darwin. Well, that's a deep truth. And a deep truth is something that absolutely everybody believes and happens to be absolutely and unequivocally false. Uh, it was actually Leon Magasin that said that. And it is the same way with becoming a demand-driven adaptive enterprise. 
it's addressing what we believe is a deep truth. And that deep truth worldwide today is, is companies are focused on cost reduction because they believe if only they can reduce costs, they'll improve the overall profitability and return on investment of the company. When in reality, that's a deep truth. And what that is, is that it's absolutely false. It, uh, when a company focuses on cost, they will absolutely destroy return on investment. And ROI is really what companies are after these days. Excellent. So tell us about flow and why it is not a common practice. Well, flow is a critical underpinning of the entire demand-driven adaptive enterprise model. And, you know, we didn't invent flow. We really think back, back uh, you know, you think back to the age of Ford, Henry Ford, and he knew all about flow. And you got to think back to guys like uh, Deming. He understood flow. And Ellie Goldratt understood flow. And so you got to ask yourself a question. If, if guys that were that smart, you know, like Peggy Chiono and F. Donaldson Brown, and all these guys have talked about flow, why is it that we have never had a sustainable enterprise level flow-based operating model? And it's because we have to understand the thing that gets in the way of flow is variability. And to manage variability, we have to have relevant usability. So think about it is that when we have good flow, we have good return on investment. And what's interesting is that if you go back to the earliest days of material requirement planning, there was a gentleman named George Basel. George was one of the founding fathers of MRP. And I've seen George speak many, many times. And in fact, he wrote the forward for one of my ERP books. And he was always known to say all benefits are directly related to the speed of flow of materials and information. Well, little could George understand the terabytes of information that we would be inundated with today. But the reality is, is we are drowning in data and driving for information. And so what we're looking for is relevance. So it's about relevant visibility, which mitigates the variability which gets in the way of flow. And what makes it so difficult is that focus on flow means that we have to let go of that deep truth of cost. Because what happens is, and we've known this for years, somebody that's been in the flow for a long time, they know when you have good flow, costs go down. But when you focus on cost, you'll destroy flow. So it's a very interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I loved what you said there about having so much information, but not really having any information at the same time. Absolutely. Because when you look at executives today, what information are they looking at? You know, they're looking at cost. Uh, now, let's think on cost for a minute. You know, we've got all these wonderfully sophisticated ERP systems, and in one of the fields in every ERP system, it says cost. It's used for the accounting, you know, the cost accounting and the preparation of the financial reports. Well, is that cost relevant? Well, you got to really peel that onion back a little bit and say, what's embedded in that cost? Well, that cost includes not only the material cost, but it also includes labor and overhead. And if I'm making an operational decision, labor and overhead is not relevant because it's a fixed cost in the short term. Labor and overhead only become relevant if I'm making a strategic decision. But our ERP systems don't draw that differentiation. So that's an excellent example of using irrelevant information uh, to make a decision. And when you include irrelevant information, it takes you longer to make the decision, and you are very much at risk of making the wrong decision. And we see companies doing this all the time, where they decide to rationalize product lines based on cost. 
Well, that doesn't take into impact what it is going on operationally. So you look back even at the earliest management accounting books, let's go back to the 1930s, 1940s, and in those books it'll state a company will profit maximize when it maximizes its contribution margin per unit of constrained capacity, whatever that capacity is. So that means that those fixed costs in the short term are not relevant to that decision at all. What we're looking at is marginal revenue minus marginal cost, which means the truly variable cost, and then what is it as a constraint? What's limiting our ability to be able to produce more? It could be a resource. It could be material. Uh, it might be a vendor's capacity. And then we have to look at it and say, how am I going to profit maximize? I'm going to do that when I maximize my contribution margin per unit of constraint capacity. Let me give you an example. If I got two products, product, say product P and product Q, and product P sells for a higher price, it sells higher margin, it, you know, everybody likes it, lower labor. But what it does is it say it takes 10 hours on my constraint and I make $100 per unit. Now I've got another product, product Q, and I only make $50 per unit. It's higher labor cost. Uh, and so what ends up happening, it's got higher overhead. Well, which product would you prefer? But see, product Q, I can do 100 of those an hour on my constraint. Well, you look at it and you think, wow, you know, of course, everybody would pick product P. Higher revenue, lower labor. But in reality, I'm making $100 for one hour of that constraint as opposed to product Q, where I can make $50 times 100 per hour. So I'm making actually $5,000 per hour of that constraint. How is a company going to profit maximize? It's about putting a different filter in front, looking at information that we have and going after what's relevant, truly relevant. Relevant information drives directly to improve return on investment. Absolutely. So let's get back to visibility for a second. Um, what are the four prerequisites to gaining visibility? Well, the four prerequisites for gaining visibility with relevant information is first, understanding what is a relevant now think about it, a relevant range, if I'm driving on a flat highway, I'm projecting that the highway's going to stay flat. But the person that's in the, the other seat is talking about mountains. But I'm thinking, how am I they're talking about mountains? Well, it's different relevant range. I'm looking at where I'm driving today, which is where operations is, and the executives are looking to the future. So they might have a totally different picture than what I have because I'm driving down the road. And this is really critically important because different things are relevant in different ranges. For example, strategic forecasts, very much relevant in the long range, not relevant in the short range. If we look at a machine breakdown, very relevant in the short range, but not relevant in the long range. And trying to force fit, just like the example we talked about, product B and product Q, trying to force fit information that doesn't fit that relevant range leads to distorted information, which means I'm going to destroy return on investment. So that's number one. Number two is we need this flow-based operating model. We talked a little bit about flow. You know, and you think about the science of flow has been supported by you know, economics, mathematics, physics, you know, managerial accounting. We talked a little bit about George Pavel already, Ali Goldratt, Taichiono, Dr. Deming. So, but there's very specific ways to construct that flow-based operating model. Because what the flow-based operating model does for me is it brings all the departments of a company into alignment. And how many times have you seen companies that each department has its own objective and they end up in conflict with 
each other. You know, think about purchasing. They get rewarded for a purchase price variance, and then they buy the cheapest material that then production can't run because it doesn't run on the machine. It might fit specifications, but it, it just doesn't run. So the second step is a flow-based operating model, which leads us into the third step, flow-based metrics. How do I measure things to bring all my subsystems into what's called coherence? Now, how do I get things to align? One of my absolute favorite soapboxes to get on is about balanced scorecards. In its name, it tells you how crazy it is. Are we going to balance? And how do you balance between two things that are in direct conflict with each other? Why do I want to put a person in conflict with doing what's best for their scorecard versus doing what's best for the company? And that's, I mean, that's how crazy is that? It causes stress in our people and it suboptimizes the performance of the company. So we have to have metrics that fit that relevant range. They have to fit the flow-based operating model. And the most important thing, then, is takes us to step four. We have to be able to tactically reconcile them. Because if you really think about it, the short term and the long term is like two different land masses. And we have to have a bridge that goes back and forth between the two land masses. And we have to be able to tactically reconcile bidirectionally between those two areas. Because those two areas absolutely different languages. Uh, they have different information that's relevant. They're managing different strategic and operational ranges. So we have to be able to reconcile them. Not aggregate and disaggregate, but reconcile. Excellent. So what are leaders' challenges with today's supply chain world? The leaders' challenges of today's supply chain can be simply said, we're into a world that's highly volatile, variable, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And if you think about it, all of our current planning methodologies are all based on the idea that if only I can torture the past sufficiently, it will tell me the future. Well, there was a couple interesting studies that were done. Uh, one was done by Deloitte University Press, where they looked at the return on net assets of American-owned asset-based businesses, global operations. From 1962 to 2012, that number fell from 4.1% to 0.9%. Wow. That is remarkable. That is incredible. So you got to say, well, if we're going to stay on that trajectory, you got to know that that's not looking good because now the return on net assets is now below the cost of money, especially as the American banking system and the Federal Reserve are starting to bump up interest rates. When you add to that, there was a great article that was done by Harvard Business Review last February, March timeframe. They did an analysis of 30,000 American-owned publicly held corporations. These are the companies, this is the backbone of the American economy. They estimated that one out of three American-owned companies will delist in the next five years. Wow. Think about the disruption. Yeah, one out of three will delist in the next five years, whether due to acquisition out of business, you know, for whatever reason, but they're going to cease to exist. So you think about return on net assets is declining at an incredible rate. We're going to have one out of three, which gives credence to the, the Harvard article that says one out of three is going to delist. And then you got to think about the impact of the new American president. You got to think about Brexit. And now you think about the, you know, the French election and Macron taking office and the changes that we're going to see in France. And it really bears credence to the fact that you 
anybody think we're going to get back to the way things were or some kind of stability? They're out of their minds. What you really have to focus on is how can I deal, how can I adapt in these new volatile times? That's really the issue for executives today because to continue to do what they've always done, they're not going to get what they always got because somebody changed the rules. So we need a new set of rules. And that's really what the demand of an adaptive enterprise is all about. It's that new set of rules that allows that company to sense, adapt, and innovate. Awesome. Yeah, that was my, my question, sort of how does that demand-driven adaptive enterprise model help? But I, I think that you covered that. So then what are the four prerequisites when incorporating the model and how will it help companies? Well, the four prerequisites of looking at the relevant range, the flow-based operating model, the flow-based metrics and the tax reconciliation are built into the model, into the demand of an adaptive enterprise model, really through one is what's called the demand-driven operating model. Inside the demand-driven operating model is a very specific way to architect a flow-based operating model that uses a series of decoupling points and control points that establishes a capability for a company to sense and adapt to changes customer demand. Now, that demand-driven operating model is configured by something that's called demand-driven SNOP. Sales and operations planning is a critical component of this, but we've divided sales and operations planning into two pieces. One is BDSNOP, which is that bi-directional tactical reconciliation, feeding the demand-driven operating model the parameters that are required to be able to fit the needs of the market. If you look at the third component, it's adaptive SNOP. An adaptive SNOP takes the view of the market, the innovation, the what business are we in, the strategy, understanding of our portfolio and saying, how are we going to go to market? What is our business plan? That is an input into the demand of an SNOP process. So the DDSNOP can output the model configuration that goes into the demand of an operating model. But it can't just be one way. This has been the key. Uh, we've had the opportunity and the great pleasure, incredible honor to work with Dick Lane for the last couple of years. Dick is the father of sales and operations planning. He's the man that invented it in 1984. He wrote the first book on it in 1988. Uh, he and Andy Koldrick innovated around SNOP for a lifetime. Dick's been doing SNOP for, you know, for 50 years. But the nut they couldn't crack was the operating model side. They couldn't solve the problem around formal planning and how we ran operations. So it's the collaboration between the demand of an institute and this think tank and Dick Ling, the father of SNOP, that have allowed us to this full demand-driven adaptive enterprise model that allows us to have this robust SNOP process supported by the definition of capability and operations. Now, why is this important? It's important because today a company coming out of their sales and operations planning process has to produce what's called a master production schedule, statement of what can and will be built. And then one of the key metrics is did I adhere to the master plan? Well, how crazy is that? What do I really want to do in this volatile time that we're in? I want to use my materials. I want to use my capacity. I want to use my capability to build what I can and will sell because that's what's going to maximize the return on investment. And that's what the demand of an adaptive enterprise model allows you to do. It connects sales and operations planning to a capability. More importantly, it does so bi-directionally because from the demand of an operating model, it, we 
feeds back to DDS and OP the capability, how's the model running, and we now bring to use all those great tools that we learned how to do in Six Sigma. We use statistical process control. We have targets. We've got ranges because it's defined in the capability. So we can look at the capability of our operations and how are we doing. Then for BDS and OP, that gives me the ability to understand what power steering do I have, what can I now take to the market, what's now possible given this new operational capability. It's not uncommon for a company that implements a demand-driven operating model to reduce their lead time, their ability to respond to the marketplace by about 80%. Typically, inventory in the network goes down a third to a half. These are incredible numbers. These aren't plus minus a couple percentage points. These are major dramatic impacts because of the demand of an operating model. When I do that operationally, that now allows me to take an entirely different value proposition. You think about it, it's sort of like you're building a beautiful sports car. Let's take on a Maserati or a Lamborghini. And what the demand of an adaptive enterprise model does is it teaches you how to drive that. Now take it out on the French Alps and go have a good time. That is true competitive advantage to a company. And that's really what this is all about. Excellent, excellent. So, Carol, my next question is, what are the stages of the development path? Thank you. 
and lean and some beautiful U-state cells that they had put into the company. Uh, the young man was actually promoted, and the company won the second uh, place in the King of the Supply Chain uh, competition in France. It's a great story. I mean, talk about return on investment for education. In two days, go back and take a half million euro out of you in another country. Amazing. Amazing. Just for our listeners, just so they know, you were kind enough to give us a free resource that expands on everything that we're talking about today. So you'll be able to find that at twobabestalksupplychain.com. So now before we wind down this interview, we've talked about the past and, and sort of going into the present, but what does the future look like? What does the next five to 10 years look like for demand-driven planning? And what are some of those challenges? 
Well, it's a, that's really interesting. I'm very, I'm very excited about the future. There's some uh, exciting announcements that are going to be coming up related to Hunt uh, as, around the software side, the enterprise level software. And what I see as the future of demand-driven world is the fact that once a single company in an industry adopts the demand-driven concepts, the rest of the industry must change or they will become irrelevant. They will die. So they, they're just not going to have a choice. But the companies that embrace these concepts are able to achieve levels of competitive advantage that can't be mimicked by any other methodology. So we're very excited about it. We're starting to see this momentum build up and an increase in right around the world. You know, the biggest barrier that we face today are the, honestly is twofold. One is the metric system, is that managers are still tied to those metrics of I've got to focus on cost, efficiency, utilization, and overhead absorption. Even though I know it's drowning me, I've got to stay focused on those things. And that's that getting back to that level one to level two move. And the second thing is, is information technology. The IT departments are saying, if it doesn't run on our current software, we're not going to do it. And so we've seen actually very successful implementations with incredible results. Uh, one company, a consumer products company, reduced its response time to the marketplace by 85%, reduced finished goods by 45%, raw materials down by 23%, able to do things they were never able to do before, and the IT department shut it down. Wow. And that just boggles your mind. Just boggles your mind. But the line of business has got to stand up and say, no, this is not about our IT footprint. It's about information technology supporting what we need to do as a line of business so that our company can not only survive but thrive in this world. Because that's really the only choice we have. We really, we only basically have two choices today. A company either learns how to adapt or it dies. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree with that. So then tell us what's next for the Demand Driven Institute. The Demand Driven Institute, this is, it's, it's so much fun working for and owning a company that's a think tank. As I said, we've never sold software. We're not a consulting company. We're out there as the thought leaders. And the next step for us is I am so excited. I get to go on the road this summer starting in July with Dick Lynn. So Dick and I are going to be out there rolling out the adaptive SNOP software uh, to executives. We're going to start in Lyon, France, and we're going to just keep marching around the world and uh, talking to executives about how they can fundamentally transform the capability of their company by embracing these concepts. So just imagine, you know, twice in my career now, you know, we've had the opportunity to uh, be with Dr. Goldratt. We actually uh, lived together for about a month when we wrote the book next but not sufficient. You know, what a great thinker to have the opportunity to work with. And now for the second time in my career, to go back to one of the guys that was really one of the founding fathers of MRP. You know, and if there's anybody that could say, go away, I did my contribution. You know, I created available promise. I created firm planned orders. I created the demand time sense, the planning time sense. You know, I wrote the first MRP software for a commercial company in 1961. I coined the term sales and operations planning. I coined the term master production schedule. I wrote this first software for master scheduling. If there's anybody that can say go away, that would be Dick Lane. This man came out of retirement, and he's going back on the road. And he is so incredible to listen to. So as we start to roll out that SNOP method, what an incredible opportunity to do that with the father of SNOP. 
Awesome, awesome. Well, your passion just radiates through uh, through all of this interview, and we wish you all the best on your on your road trip. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, sir. I hope we get the opportunity to follow up and uh, get an update on what's going on in this crazy demand-driven world. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you, Carol. Carol left us so much to think about. Stay tuned next week as we get into transformational value in IoT and predictive analytics with Scott from Transilient. This episode wouldn't be possible without you, our listeners. Remember to rate us or write us a review on iTunes. This episode was produced by Daniel Smith. We are your hosts, Nick and Sarah. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Iceport and Secure Skids, for helping us do what we love to do in this fun and informative platform. Remember, folks, ship happens. Are you looking for short-term storage solutions? Do you have empty warehouse space you would like to fill? Secure Skids is your Airbnb for warehousing, connecting vacant warehouse space with companies that need space for their products. Visit them at secureskids.com for more information and to sign up for free.